Today's episode of the Triple Threat Podcast is dedicated to the life, memory, and careers of Brickhouse Brown, Brian Lawler, and Nikolai Volkov. He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, he's outspoken. You will tell your kids, and your grandkids, and your great-great-grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Yeah. Wow. 
get it going right here, right now. Welcome in here to the Triple Threat Podcast, episode number 57 of our Triple Threat Podcast. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner on the two-man power trip, the one and only John Paz. And John, of course, we are joined every week on the show by the star. He is the one and only franchise Shane Douglas. Shane, welcome to episode number 57, The Gary Wolf Saga. Man, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm excited for this. I'm uncharacteristically dragging ass today. I've been a little bit busy on the franchise end of things, but big, big episode. And I'm, you know, first of all, thank you to the fans that voted to uh, bring this episode this week. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think we got some uh, pre-business to get to. Yeah, we got a little bit of pre-business to get to here. And before we get into the news of the week that just very briefly we're going to touch on, uh, I want to mention, Shane, and we, we haven't even had a chance to really get into this, but the Figures Toy Company, we mentioned them at the end of last week's episode. Uh, we are going to be uh, partnering with them in a major way here in the coming weeks. And I just want to give myself here a little platform nice. just to, to get a little information out here about the Figures Toy Company. You hear us talking about the first franchise Shane Douglas action figure in years. And what that did for us is that got the uh, the wheels turning, it got the things in motion, where we're now partnering up with the Figures Toy Company to bring you some cool promotions down the road. But just a little bit about Figures Toy Company, if you don't know, it's revolutionizing the wrestling figure industry by creating collectible action figures of the hottest talent in the industry today, as well as paying homage to the legends of the past. So these fully posable 6-inch action figures are very compatible with the modern wrestling figures from other companies, but these feature intricate designs and realistic clothing accessories. So they've got the Rising Stars line, but also the Legends of Professional Wrestling line to include such folks as, if you look at the Rising Stars, Tama Tonga, who's formerly now of the Bullet Club, Sammy Callahan, Chris Hero, mm. Joey Ryan, and then when you flip on over to the Legend side, how about Jerry Lynn, Jim Cornette, and oh, of course, our buddy, the franchise, Shane Douglas. So you've got, <laughs> you've got nearly 30 different stars to choose from, and they're all available right now at figurestoycompany.com and wrestlingsuperstore.com. And just to kind of wet your palate a little bit, Future rela- releases of the figures include such stars as Colt Cabana, Jeff Cobb, Conan, and yes, even the Queen of Extreme, Francine. So get on over to Figures Toy Company right now and check out those rising stars and the legends of professional wrestling. And stay tuned in the coming weeks as we've got some huge promotions getting geared up to be launched between the two of us, Figures Toy Company, and the Triple Threat Podcast. And Shane... I got all that off my chest, so I, I'm sure you're really excited to hear that because this is going to be going down in a pretty big way. Well, I, I talked about this uh, on one of the few scant times in the last week I've been on Twitter, and uh, you know, excited to hear it coming to fruition. Uh, you know, these uh, I, I can honestly say that everybody I've worked with from Figures Toy Company was above and beyond professional and uh, attentive to things that I, questions that I had about the figure, the, you know, the images that I was getting with the figure, et cetera. So, you know, I had never seen that in the past, you know, with any of the toy companies that we had worked with, the franchise figures of the past, you know, the, the W go figure, the WCW figure, uh, I, I wasn't aware of it was even on the market until well after it was on the market. So, uh, 
just sort of the way I guess they did things. So, you know, uh, happy here. This is, uh, this has happened and, and, you know, we'll be able to get, you know, some, uh, really, uh, cool, uh, ideas and, and deals for the fans out there listening. And just another reason to tune into the uh, triple threat podcast. Absolutely. We're growing by leaps and bounds every week. And Shane, the anticipation for this episode was huge. And of course, you know, when we get into a tribute episode like this dedicated to a topic, the crack research team, AKA JP gets rolling into, uh, <laughs> into his little dungeon that he's got there and he goes buck wild. And we've got some great questions here lined up talking about the saga, but unfortunately, and we've done this many times to start the show. We have a couple unfortunate uh, passings to announce over the past weekend. And even though we're going to have this Gary Wolf episode, mm. we got to mention these. I mean, you've got three huge names. you got Brickhouse Brown, uh, who was reported to have passed last week while we were recording. Um, people had been reporting that he was, he was gone, and then it turned out he wasn't. But he ultimately did pass away on Sunday as well as the, the absolutely uh, shocking death of Brian Lawler, a.k.a. Brian Christopher. Uh, Well-documented yeah. some of the issues he had, but just did not see coming what ended up happening and his death. And then, of course, WWE Hall of Famer, pro wrestling legend, and somebody you know very well, Shane, Nikolai Volkov, also passing away after yeah. a, a little bit of an illness that looked like he had been coming back from. But, you know, that was one tragic Sunday in professional wrestling this past weekend. Yeah, you know, it took you back to the worst days of, of uh, you know, the, the darkest histories of our business. And so many guys were passing away. Uh, you know, Nikolai, I got to say, shocked me because, you know, not a young guy, but, you know, Nikolai was always in really good shape for his age and always talked about diet and working out and always was in the dressing room, you know, doing leg ups and, you know, everything else. So like when, when Dominic Canucci actually called me and told me a, a few days ago about, uh, about Nikolai's passing. And then like, and you know, rapid fashion, JP and you and several other people started texting in about, uh, Rick house Brown and Brian Christopher, Brian Lawler. Uh, and you know, just, it beckoned me back to those worst days, you know, of years past where we had just, like flies one two three and then one two three and you know it's uh just brought back uh the worst of those days because you know in, in the past we've seen this so often and it seemed to be put to bed for a while and like you said this past sunday just brought up you know another uh dark period of our of our company of our industry's history very unfortunate, and yeah, like you said with Nikolai, uh, just the picture of health, even competing in a match uh, just a few months ago, which I guess was really going to be the last match of his career, even though it ended up ultimately being the last match of his career, but uh, John was actually telling me earlier today that he had just retired from his job that he had after he was finished wrestling, and it's just it's a shame to see that because he was still consistently booked, and uh, it's just it's a huge loss, and, and I wrote on Twitter one of those timeless and unforgettable characters because a lot of people did play Russians, uh, even though uh, Nikolai, I believe, was Lithuanian, but a lot of people played that evil Russian character, and uh, none of them, I think, really touched uh, the global landscape that Nikolai did as part of that Rockland wrestling era. Well, that, that's in, in large part because of you know where the industry had gone at that time, but 
you know, much like all the guys of that generation, when you go back and you read Nikolai Volkov, Beppo, uh, uh, you know, when you go back and read his history as a young man growing up and, you know, the, the, the whole trajectory of his story to the story days in the WWF, uh, it's an incredible life's journey. You know, the, the type of stuff of books, you know, that when you read, you know, you think this has got to be a made up story because it's such an incredible journey. You know, much like I've talked about Bruno Sammartino's uh, story growing up in Italy, uh, Nikolai had a, 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 a an eerily similar upbringing, albeit not point by point, but just one of those upbringings that for somebody like me that grew up in New Brighton, Pennsylvania, uh, you know, for most of us that grew up in, in America, and you read these life stories of these guys, uh, astounding, you know, just an astounding trajectory that, you know, it makes you wonder like what kept these guys going and, you know, what led them to the, the track of looking for something like professional wrestling, like anything bigger. You know, I mean, when I read these guys' life stories, I think like the, the, the obvious thing would be to look like for your next meal, you know, the next, the next thing right in front of your face, not laying out some trajectory to, to a career that would make you a, an international star in anything, let alone the sport of professional wrestling. So, uh, you know, just really saddened by, uh, to, to hear about Nikolai's past. You know, the thing about Nikolai was, you know, he knew my connection to Dominic and Bruno. And so every time I ever saw Nikolai, he would ask how Dominic was doing when Janine, his wife was still alive. He would ask how Janine was doing, would ask about Bruno was such a down to earth, lovely guy, you know, that just, you, you could tell cared about other people. And, uh, you know, sadly with Brickhouse Brown, I didn't know Brickhouse Brown. I I'd met him, you know, a handful of times and, you know, our career paths didn't really, run across each other. Brian Christopher, another one, it's it, strange as it sounds because of our proximity and age, we were always in alternate companies. It, it was never like I was in a place, like I was talking to Cody Michaels earlier and, you know, he used to travel quite extensively with Brian. Uh, you know, obviously I knew Brian from, you know, an independent show here and there, but never really got a chance to know him. And, and I'm saddened by the fact now that I, you know, won't have that chance. Uh, you know, but like you said earlier in, in, in your setup to this, you know, like many of us in the industry, you know, there's, there's dark chapters, to a lot of these life stories and, uh, with his, you know, what I'm hearing right now is, you know, you know, you know, DUI and, uh, then hanging himself, uh, it's shocking to, to be quite honest with you. It's shocking. You know, that, that, uh, you know, I just, I, like in, in my head, I'm trying to consider and ponder what kind of deep recesses of depression you must be in to get to that point. And the feeling of hopelessness that, you know, that you didn't feel you had anybody else to reach out to or, uh, you know, to throw, you know, to pray for a lifeline from, uh, makes me sad. It really, really honestly makes me sad that anybody 
would, would experience something like that and not feel that they could reach out to somebody, anybody, uh, instead of opting for that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tragic. And he's, uh, he, he battled out of the demons a few times, and it just seemed like it always ended up going back down the, uh, the path of uh, least resistance, and it's a shame. And obviously condolences to Jerry Lawler and the, and the Lawler family. Sure. Uh, as well as the Memphis wrestling community, which you know how tight the Memphis wrestling guys are. I mean, if you think about the grand scheme of things, you think about how Jeff Jarrett came up with Brian Christopher, how Jamie Dundee came up with Brian Christopher, and all three of them being the sons of successful wrestlers, just big shoes to fill. And, and I don't know how much of that played into some of the, uh, the issues that Brian Christopher had you know, at the end of the day, which I really hope there was none. I mean, his father had a wonderful career, and Brian Christopher had a great career, too, and nothing to uh, shake a stick at. And uh, I just want to dial it back to Nikolai for one second before we move on to the topic at hand. And, John, as I welcome you in here, over the last couple of years, you know, as you've been reaching out to guys for the shows and kind of being a liaison between some promoters, you had the chance to talk to Nikolai on a couple of occasions, and we've met him a few times at shows uh, just always was a genuine, genuine guy to us. And John, what were your re- uh, interactions with Nikolai over the last couple of years in uh, dealing with show-related material? Always such a nice guy, such a classy guy, and kind of an underrated, like funny guy. He always sneak in little jokes or say a little something. <laughs> you wouldn't quite expect that from him. For I don't know for whatever reason, I always thought of him like this villainous heel, you know, Russian, just bad guy. But he'd always say something funny or sneak making something funny or, you know, do something funny that I was kind of thrown off a little bit by, but such a great guy. And back in May, uh, he actually wrestled his last match. I was shocked. You know, he's seven years old, but he's still in great shape. He wrestled um, against Hacksaw. But uh, I was with Tito when he was talking to Tito and he was talking about how uh, he's retired now from his, you know, his day-to-day job. But he's still doing booking, still doing this and that. He said he was booked regularly pretty much every weekend, booked somewhere. And he seemed to be doing really good. And the sad part, he seemed to be so happy that he finally, you know, was retired. to get to relax and kind of just do whatever he wanted and, and kind of just live life. And I remember Tito was like, oh, great. Now, you know, now, now it's the time, you know, you're going to have a lot of free time and you know, it's good, happy life to have and things like that. So that always kind of stuck with me like the last couple of days. Thinking, oh, I was kind of sad because he literally just retired back in January and he was kind of thinking of, of stuff to do vacation wise and outside of wrestling wise but of course take the booking so i always just think of that and it was a little bit of a, of a sad thing knowing that uh, he just passed but in thinking about him i just think back even some funny stuff that happened at autograph signing he'd be in the middle of taking a picture and all of a sudden he'd go and he'd eat a sandwich right as he's about to take a picture with somebody something you know silly like that just like, <laughs> oh, this, you know this guy has a little bit of a comedic element that i didn't kind of see before <laughs> yeah that, that really was very much him, you know. You'd, you'd have to pay close attention because you'd be in a back and forth conversation with him, and you know, just sort of agreeing along. And he'd throw like a little zinger in there, you know. If you didn't catch it, you know, you'd, you'd be in agree, agreement with him, and you know, and he just laugh at you and you know, point it out to you. It was, uh, you're right, JP. He uh, there there was a side of Nikolai that was very counter to his on screen persona and character. Uh, he did have a big sense of humor. Now that you point that out, it's a it's a terrible loss, and again another timeless and cherished, beloved figure in professional wrestling. That we will always have the memories and the matches of the great Nikolai Volkov, and uh, thoughts and prayers as well to Brickhouse Brown, to the Volkov uh, clan, as well as uh, Brian Christopher, Brian Lawler. Um, 
not to be forgotten at all. So I, I don't want to just sweep them away, but we got to get into some business at hand here. Episode 57 is the fans' choice. Voted in the Gary Wolf saga and Shane. We know the players. We know the uh, the story behind it. It's a topic we really haven't talked about on the show, oddly enough, because so many other things have come up. But when we say the saga, is a saga a, a good description of this feud between you and Gary Wolf? I, I would say it's like one of those... Uh... You know, if the definition of song is a story handed down generation to generation and, you know, takes on ever aggrandizing size, I, I would think that this certainly fits the bill as, as a saga, uh, you know, way beyond, you know, anything that at the time, I think Paul, me or Gary would have ever figured would come from it. Uh, you know, wrestling has always been built. Yeah, in, in a physical sport like professional wrestling, uh, clearly on any given night, something can happen that isn't planned, that nobody expects to happen, and sometimes it can turn tragic, as happened with the Gary Wolf uh, saga, if you will. If you look at the major impact that this had on ECW, I personally think that this could be the most intense rivalry that ECW had just because of the realism that was played into it. Now, I know the ECW purists can also say, well, Sabu broke his neck in ECW as well. And, you know, unfortunately, Benoit would move on and they really wouldn't have that giant few that you guys had. But I think that the, the passion, the intensity, and the story that went along with it probably cements this as the most intense uh, feud ECW had, and again, the ECW purist is going to argue. Uh, you know, you and Dreamer are going to argue Dreamer and Raven, or or Taz and Sabu. But I think the realism and what we're going to get to the the one moment in particular that we're going to cover on this show in depth for the first time, uh, without a doubt, cements this as the top moment and the top feud and the most intense feud that ECW saw. Now we we'll go back to the beginning where. The Four Corners match, the infamous Four Corners match for the ECW television title mm. at Heatwave 96, which we briefly have talked about in recent weeks as well in, in relation to Francine, uh, where Gary Wolf, I guess it looks like you're going for a DDT on a championship belt. Uh, something happens. He lands on his, uh, his neck, and that's where the story begins. So now, Shane, we've seen the videos that are out there. We've seen it in slow motion. We've seen everything. When you think about that move in that moment, and you can replay it in your head, or it could be just slow motion to you, when you get when you're ready to drop him, what's going through your head as this is about to go down? Well, I mean, what was going through my head, and and, and the the, pre, the previous six seven hours of build up too were two very different things. You know, when you've been in the business as long as I've been in it, uh, uh, you know, a bump. You know, a wrestler getting knocked down or, or you know, falling. There, there's a certain rhythm to that, if that makes sense. And the last thing you want to he- feel uh, when you're in the midst of taking a bump or giving a bump, like I would be in this case, is a thud. You know, a deadened thud. Uh, you know, everybody that's ever been to a wrestling show is, heard the ba-boom when you know they, you hit the mat and you get the sound resonance around the arena. Uh, 
the, the, the sort of give in the ring and the bounce and, you know, the, the bodies and the motions that, that would play with, in harmony with physics. For the leading up to that match that night, uh, Gary kept coming to me and, and he had done it so repeatedly over the course of the day that by the time it got closer to match time, I just figured he's fucking with me because he had done this multiple times throughout the day, telling me that he was going to take that bump like a DDT. And I knew, you know, again, just knowing the physics of this business, I knew that wasn't a good idea because I was 253 pounds at the time. And it wasn't a DDT. It was a drop arm DDT, a single arm DDT. So, when I came off and grabbed his arm, you know, if you look at it from, if you freeze frame that, I've grabbed his arm, locked over and under, you know, left arm over his arm and shoulder, right arm under his hand, under his wrist. Uh, I'm getting ready to fall flat to my back. Well, Gary Wolf, if you freeze frame that, if you envision what I just described to you, Gary Wolf is looking, if he's planning on taking it like a DDT, like he claimed to all day, he's looking at a point directly, you know, 18, 24 inches in front of his forehead. And the, what he doesn't understand is there's a 253-pound lead weight here to my left starts to drop. My body weight invariably is going to pull him to his left. and instead of going down in a straight trajectory towards the mat, he's going to be pulled down and to his left. Uh, in car, when you're in a car crash and you don't have your seatbelt on, you fly forward if you're in the front seat and you hit the windshield and that hits your forehead and snaps your head back. It's called a Jefferson fracture. That's what fractures your neck. And very serious why so many people die in car accidents. Uh, I would surmise, not having ever looked at any of Gary Wolf's medical files, is that that is what he was diagnosed with, a Jefferson fracture. Because if you just look at the physics in your mind's eye, he's, his body, in a sense, is moving forward, in this case, somewhere, but forward, and hitting on his forehead. But as he hits, he's hitting at a direct and pulled to his left position. So in either way, his head is snapping backward and it caused a, uh, you know, uh, a pretty serious injury. Now here's the crazy part about that. After the match in the dressing room, you know, for an hour or two afterwards, now, you know, an extended period of time in the dressing room, Gary Wolf is walking around the dressing room and he's trying to crack his neck. You know, you have a kink in your neck, you can try to crack it and get that kink out of it. Uh, Gary was doing that all around the dressing room and back. You know, he's walking fine. And uh, now, in hindsight, I've seen the video when he hits, there's a second one, he rolls to the side. It looks like he's selling, but he's not in our business doing the exaggerated sell. He's sort of holding his head and rolling to the apron. And uh, there's a again, hindsight is always 2020, but as I watched that, you know, and I can't disassociate knowing what I know happened, uh, I, I it, to me, it looks in his body language that he knows it's hurt. 
So later in the dressing room, when I see him walking around the dressing room trying to crack his neck, uh, for the rest of the evening, you know, just walk around and, you know, not in any like over dramatic way. He's just walking around the dressing room and, you know, trying to get a kink out of his neck like we all do. You know, in, in wrestling, your neck is always sore. Excuse me, your neck is always sore. And uh, we leave and go back to the hotel that night. I fly home and uh, it wasn't till early Monday morning that I get a phone call from Todd Gordon who tells, asks me first, he calls me and says, hey, have you heard about Gary? And I said, now, on that phrase alone, you have to understand that me and Todd Gordon were in this like sort of back and forth rib war uh, where like I would rib him and I'd wait for his receipt and then he'd rib me and I'd rib, rib him. And there was this back and forth thing going on, you know, for a long, long time preceding this. One time I called his office when ECW was getting a lot of backlash about, uh, you know, the violence and all of that, uh, I called his office and said, uh, you know, using some kind of a stupid accent, I said, you know, this is the uh, Senator Alan Simpson calling from the great state of Washington, <laughs> calling for Todd Gordon. A few, minutes, a few seconds later, Todd goes, Senator Simpson, it's a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> You know, completely got, now he'll deny that to this day, but I completely got him. He thought it was Alan Simpson from Washington. And it was like that kind of stupidity between us. Just, you know, just you get me, I get you. And uh, so when Todd Gordon called and said, hey, did you hear about Gary Wolf? It just sounded like a perfect rib setup, you know? And I said, okay, Todd, I'll bite. And that was exactly what I said to him. I said, I'll bite. What's, what are you going to throw at me? He said, uh, He's over at the uh, hospital right now. He's going to surgery. He broke his neck on Saturday. And I said, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, I bought it. You know, I, all night long, he's walking around cracking his neck two nights ago. You know, and a day and a half ago in the evening, he's, he's trying to crack his neck. He's not paralyzed. He's not going to the hospital or anything. And, uh, you know, as the week goes on, Todd's calling me and telling me, have you spoken to Gary? And, and I'm just not falling for it. Because I believe in my heart this is a bullshit rib setup. And the next time I see Gary Wolf and he's got this halo screwed into his skull. I mean, I literally went up and looked to see if the, if the thing was really screwed into his skull. Because I figured Todd's going to hell of an extent to sell me on this rib. And when I realized that that was a legitimate halo screwed in. Now, you've never seen one of these things up close. You see drill through the skin into the actual cranium. Skull. Uh, it was like a, one of those like, moments. Like, holy shit. And when back at it, you know, we could have come clean and, and, and you know, meet it and said, Gary Wolf's out of, you know, out of commission for X amount of time and as a result, Pitbull number uh, two is going to step in and defend his honor, whatever. And instead, I got to give Paul Hammond credit. I mean, he came up with a brilliant take of Dusty Rhodes' adage, uh, you know, chicken saddled out of chicken shit. Um, you know, and, and Paul Hammond did that to spades. We'll get into this in the, in the bit, you know. Along the way, there were 
know, things that he was offering up to me as ideas for verbiage and things that felt really awkward, a, a bit too much, if that makes sense in the ECW world. Uh, you know, like I remember when, we, when Francine and I, and we spoke about this a few weeks ago <clears throat> when she was on the one year episode, uh, we were doing the, the swimming episode where I supposedly swam from this, you know, island like a mile in the distance and <laughs> she walking a smoking hot bathing suit. Right. And, uh, me swimming to the turds and the hypodermic needles and, <laughs> and all that. Uh, uh, you know, he says to me, you know, what I want you to say when you finally make whatever point it is you're going to make, I want you to say about something about Jerry's kids, Jerry Lewis and the telephone, about Jerry's kids picking pencils up in their mouths. And I was like, oh my God, Paul, come on. Like, there's, you know, there's a limit even to the franchise's space, right? And, uh, son of a bitch fucked me into it. And, and uh, and that was like one of the early ones that we, but it was all that kind of stuff that, in hindsight, made the franchise character so despicable, you know that you would pay your bottom dollar to see him get done, him get crippled to to see him lose, and ultimately. From where I had come from in the business, like go say black hat, white hat, that's that's that was as black hat in the nineties as I could possibly figure to be. Uh, you know, the, we had pushed the, the the bounds of vulgarity, and contrary to the kid that lost his smile that says I couldn't do a promo without cussing, I honest Christ can throw together a sentence without fucking swearing, not goddamn once. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it really, in the 90s, you know, we would push that envelope about as far as we could. And, and you know, you look back at that, today, it incenses you today watching it. You know, 20 plus years later, it incenses you today. And so clearly you could tell I wasn't too concerned about my T-shirt sales. <laughs> Oh, it cemented you as, as not just the uh, top heel, but the top heel, because it, it also catapulted the, the franchise character into the stratosphere of almost removing you from just the run-of-the-mill heel, because you did something that was so despicable that even the bad guys could probably look at you and be like, well, geez, I, I don't know if I want to be as bad as what this guy's doing, but... You, to go back to the beginning of that with the move itself, and this is a, a debate that John and I were even having as as recent as this afternoon talking about the episode. I was never, ever clear on what the actual move was going to be because it is taken so awkwardly. And it looks like whether it was a, a bot's drop toehold or like you were going in for the belly to belly or, or something of that nature, the fact that he looks like, you know, he was taking the Jake the Snake DDT where he was just going to kind of go limp and go dead. And, and that's where the the connection hits the belt. You know, the head hits the belt and, you know, the rest they say is history. Is that something to you that you felt he just wasn't grasping the actual execution of the move you wanted to hit? No, we, we had gone over that repetitively during the day. And I, like I said, this wasn't once or twice or thrice. This was... Over the course of the entire afternoon at the building, 
you know, we knew, you know, I, I had suggested the single arm DDT, drop arm DDT from early in, in the day. All we knew was that Paul wanted it to build to some crescendo where I would catch him. And, uh, you know, and so I suggested that and, and we went with that the entire day. The problem was through the course of the day, he kept coming back to me and telling me he was going to take it like a pal driver. Uh, and I kept telling him, no, pancake flat, pancake flat. You know, don't try to take this like a DDT because in a perfect world, in a vacuum, with all variables under control, which they're not in a, in a match, you know, you could do that and you'd be fine. The problem is in the course of a match, I can't predict with 100% certainty with that kind of a move where my foot placement will be. Uh, will I be blown up at that point? Will I be winded? Will I be sweaty? Uh, when I grab you, especially a big, strong, thick guy like Gary, uh, I can't tell you X marks the spot. When I do this move, your head's going to hit exactly here. Because there's so many variables that you can't possibly be in control of. And when he kept telling me that through the course of the day, I'm going to take it like a DDT, I'm going to take it like a DDT. It got to the point where I'd be, you know, and this is again over the course of the day, the afternoon at the ECW arena, I kept explaining to him why you couldn't do that to the point that it got, from my estimation, silly, you know, that he's just fucking with me because certainly he's smart enough not to take that move that way. And I've already explained to him all the things that can go wrong if you attempt to take the move that way. And yet he keeps coming up to me and with a little bit of a grin on his face saying he's going to take it like a DDT. And so I just marked it up to he's like Todd, you know, it wasn't just me and Todd Gordon back then everybody was ribbing or trying to rib everybody in ECW. So you always had your guard up, you know, as the, what was legit, what wasn't. And excuse me, I think I'm tonight. Uh, so when I'm coming off the ropes, if you watch the playback, if I remember, and I haven't seen the playing back in some time, but if you watch the playback, as I come off the ropes, I'm, I'm a bit in straight alignment with Gary, which causes me to have to step to my right to be able to gr reach over his arm to grab his arm. If I was going to do a DDT, I was in perfect position from where I was standing. So, uh, I know I, you know, we've, we've called this specific move. I, you know, not good at this point to digress from that. I stepped slightly to my right, reached over his arm. And again, Gary's a pretty big, pretty wide guy. And as I grabbed that and came back to be what would be equivalent to a flat back bump for me, just dropping straight to my back. When I hit, instead of getting that percussion and that boom, give, and boom, give back, you know, like a bounce, boom, boom. Instead of getting that, it was a thud, like a dead drop. There was no repercussion. And when I rolled to my right and looked back, I saw Gary rolling to his, what would be his right, my left, away from me, holding his neck. So at that particular moment, I just figured he was selling. Uh, 
like I said, in hindsight, knowing, you know, again, 2020 being, you know, hindsight being 2020, looking back at that footage, I, I can't honestly tell you if I remember at that moment that looks awkward the way he's selling. Uh, it, it certainly does in hindsight. And then, of course, knowing what would come after that, uh, you know, the, the, the whole thing just seemed to be from a booker's point of view for Paul, an almost beautiful outcome, you know, knowing where he's going to go with it. I, I would have never in a million years as a booker or as a wrestler thought to go the route that Paul did because it was just all so damn tasteless. And, you know, really, really, really in poor taste, you know, far beyond what most things in the business were done at that time. I think that's part of the reason that makes ECW resonate to today. It, there was no shades of gray in between. You were like Bill Watts said all those years ago, you were a black hat or you were a white hat in ECW. There was no gray in between. So I guess you could say this re-cemented you as the top heel in the promotion uh, pretty quickly. I was still trying to make my, make myself that I was, I was still trying to be, you know, uh, uh, it was pretty damn clear by that point the fans weren't going to love me, so <laughs> it, was, it was time to try the other route. And uh, you know, and to be honest, you know, my my whole tenure in, in ECW under Paul was to be a heel. Um, the only time that Paul ever digressed from that was in Pittsburgh, uh, where Paul saw an inverse universe. You know, I grew up reading the Marvel comics and. Back when I was a kid, they had the what if comic books. You know, what if Peter Parker wasn't bitten by the radioactive spider? What if, you know, the Fantastic Four hadn't been hit with cosmic rays? What if this? What if that? And in Pittsburgh, uh, as black hearted as the franchise character was, Paul Heyman knew he could come to Pittsburgh and write a storyline that would work nowhere else on the planet but Pittsburgh and uh, you know, it, 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 if you go back and watch the matches from there, I did nothing different. I worked no differently than I did anywhere else. Uh, my promos may have been a bit more complimentary to the hometown people because I mean, you know, I always thought like the worst to me from a heels point of view, if I go out and say, hey, you stupid fans, why don't you love me? I'm the greatest wrestler ever. And they boo. You're like, well, fuck you, right? Uh, but if you go out and say, hey, you fans, why don't you love me? And they pop. What are you going to say? Oh, you stupid fans. Why did you pop? I really want you to boo. Uh, phony, contrived. That's something you see in sports entertainment. Um, you know, so why wouldn't a guy like the franchise who believes that he's the greatest and says he's the greatest and shows every night he believes he's the greatest. Why wouldn't he believe that an audience, albeit his hometown crowd, that's finally giving him the adulation he supposedly seeks, the, the validation of his greatness in his mind, why would he say, oh, you stupid fans, shut up? Uh, you know, certain things like you think about it, how many shows you've been to, you see a heel go to the ring, right? And the fan, you know, the heel gets in the ring and says, shut up. Meanwhile, the crowd's been, you could hear a pin drop in the audience. 
well, who exactly is he telling to shut up? Is he <laughs> hearing voices in his head? I, you know, that, that, and, you know, then the same thing, like when a crowd sort of half pops for a heel, which is the worst reception a heel can get. Uh, what's that heel supposed to say? Those of you in the crowd that are cheering for me, shut up or, or, or keep going. And the, those of you that are booing me, shut up. Uh, it just really adds for mixed signal. And so in Pittsburgh, it was the only place, again, Paul booked no differently other than who my opponent would be. Uh, I worked the same in Pittsburgh. My promos might have been slightly different, not vastly different. And, you know, the, the difference was that it was Pittsburgh, my hometown. Fans had followed me and my trajectory in the business for, at that point, you know, 12, 15 years. And... Uh, but back to the Gary Wolf thing, uh, you know, on that particular night, we had just done the, uh, the Francine reveal, you know, that caught the fans off guard and really pissed them off because they didn't see it coming. And then this would happen right afterwards. And then all those vignettes that we'll talk about, you know, that just, uh, like dumping gasoline on the fire, so to speak. Oh, my God, yeah. And then talk about, you know, Gary Wolf did break his neck, but Anthony Durante also took a pretty wicked nut shot from you and then a nice slap from, uh, from Francine uh, just right <laughs> before the, uh, the neck breaking. But the match itself, I mean, please go back and watch it. I mean, it's 45 minutes of, of just pure uh, excitement featuring Shane, featuring Pitbull number 2, Anthony Durante, as well as uh, Two Cold Scorpio Too and, cold. And, Chris, yeah. Yeah, and Chris Jericho. And I believe it, that might have been one of Jericho's last appearances in ECW. I believe it was, yeah. Yeah, if memory serves me correctly. I, yeah, I, I believe it was. And, you know, but, but look back at the luxury of that match. I mean, you know, every, you know, today, you know, all of our histories are well known by the fans. Uh, you know, from a booker's point of view, how the fuck can you go wrong? You got... Pitbull number two, Anthony Durante, uh, who was explosively strong and incredibly charismatic on camera. Uh, you have, and, and, and also in the Philadelphia area, very well known for, let's just say, all the wrong reasons, um, uh, legitimately. And now you've got two cold Scorpio, you know, one of the, Greatest flyers and, 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 and names of the generation. And Chris Jericho. What more do you need to say about Chris Jericho in the years since, right? Uh, and, you know, another guy named Shane Douglas in, in the match. And then you have Francine standing at ringside and uh, Gary Wolf, you know, who everybody knew was, you know, joined at the hip with, with Anthony Durante. So, I mean, from a, from a booker's point of view, this is nitro and glycerin times two. And all you've got to do is shake it up and throw it in the middle of the ring and let it go. And, 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 and you know, keep in mind, if you can put four of those names together in one match, how strong must the rest of your card be that you can take all those four names? Because, you know, typically, in a, you know, in, a, in a booker's mind, that's two great matches at least. And... Now you can put them all into one because you've got this dressing room full of Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero, 
psychosis and Juventud Guerrero and Rey Mysterio Jr. and Conan and uh, Sandman and Raven and Tommy Dreamer and Sabu and Taz and you know this incredible dressing room of talent that you could put those four into one match and and get to this kind of conclusion that would build for the next you know what six seven eight months at least. Yeah, at least. And for you, it was eight months of being back in ECW. So did the franchise character need, and we're not going to even factor in the neck break, just the turn, just Francine joining you and, and you having to have the business at hand before even the Gary Wolf neck breaking incident. Um, did the franchise character need this as a shot in the arm after only a year prior, you're at SummerSlam grading matches in the back uh, as part of a pay-per-view. And now... <laughs> You're the focal point uh, of a huge show in the summertime for ECW. So was this a shot in the arm that you needed on your way back in? Yeah. You know, I, you know, I think in anything, when you bring something back, you have to repackage it to some extent. You can't just say, hey, here's last week's uh, dinner that I you know, shoved under the uh, refrigerator for you now and heat it up in the microwave. You have to give it something different, something more, something in wrestling vernacular, a swerve, you know, something that the fans don't see coming. Yet once it happens, the fans say, what the fuck? Holy shit. And that was exactly what the Francine whole thing did. Because keep in mind, in the entire time that I was gone to that horrible place up in Connecticut, uh, Francine was out there fighting for her men, the pit bulls. And, you know, so she was as natural a part of them as the black and gold was for me. So when she did that in that match, when nobody saw it coming and then did that sexy dance, pulling that skirt off and reveal that franchise thong underneath, it was one of those classic ECW moments where you could see every one of those 1,100 fans in that arena who thought they had it all figured out, who thought they were smarter than Paul and could book ahead of him and knew exactly where he was going, they were all caught with their pants down around their heels, around their ankles. They didn't see it coming. And the, the Gary Wolf drop arm DDT, the Gary Wolf broken neck spot, was almost an epitaph to all that. You know, this incredible match had taken place. Then this Francine reveal. And then on top of all that, now there's this that happened. It, it, to the fan on the outside looking in, it almost came across, I think, at, at that moment when they first heard this, is okay, here comes another sports entertainment style bullshit story arc where we got this figured out. And then they see, like me, they see Gary Wolf walking around Philadelphia with this thing screwed into his skull. Um, and at that point, it became 100% evident. And if you were a person living in Philadelphia that hadn't seen Gary somewhere around town, next time you came to the ECW arena and saw him screwed into that thing, you know, it's like some kind of a medieval contraption. You know, this thing screwed into your skull and wrapped around you and locked in and 
you know, it's the kind of thing that like you have nightmares about. Uh, it really set the stage for, you know, Francine, especially, you know, she had just made this turn from, you know, this voluptuous, beautiful ballet manager to suddenly this, uh, uh, you know, this vixen that, you know, that they, they couldn't stand for all these reasons. Uh, the chemistry was exactly right. The franchise character in that return to ECW arena, uh, needed something more. You couldn't just say, here's the franchise back and he's back from WWF. It had to be that with a little bit of sauce thrown in and something to make it taste a little bit sweeter. And Francine gave that in spades and took this whole trajectory and this dark side of the franchise character to the forefront. So you traded in that leather of the Pitbulls in for uh, some of those more glamorous looks. And, you know, you say it very slowly, uh, very tantalizing, that reveal of the franchise uh, undergarments, which uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening, a lot of these uh, old school fans, you listen, you close your eyes, and you know exactly the moment that we're talking about. But, Shane, what's your relationship like with both Pitbull number one and Pitbull number two at that point. Are you guys friends or is, are you guys strictly just working together at this point? Uh, I knew, I knew Anthony at that point better than Gary, uh, because I'd worked with him so much, you know, Paul had angled me you know, quite a lot with, uh, with Anthony, uh, prior to the, prior to my departure. And then upon my return and, you know, I mean, I got along great with both of them in dressing room. Don't get me wrong. But I knew Anthony much better than Gary because I'd worked with him so much during that time and previous to that time in my first run in ECW. Um, you know, so this happening, it, it wasn't the kind of thing like where I counted Gary as close a friend like I would have, say, uh, Chris or Bam Bam that I could call up and say, geez, Chris, I'm sorry what happened. You know, you know, tell me, you know, what's going on? Uh, I didn't know him quite that well enough at that point to do that. And I think that lent some uh, uh, veracity to his promos and my promos back and, you know, us bouncing off of each other because we really at that point did not know each other as well as I did say with Anthony or many of the other guys like Jericho or Scorpio or Taz or Dreamer or so many others that I've worked with in ECW, I hadn't yet at that point, if I'm not mistaken, I, I don't want to say this and then have some fans say, well, on December 6, 2000, you know, 1994, uh, you wrestled. I don't believe I ever wrestled uh, Gary Wolf in a singular match prior to that angle taking place. Not that I could find. Anyway, you you definitely didn't. But I always see wrestlers or you hear wrestlers talk about you know what they were feeling in the moment. They went for it. So when you have the halo and you're about to shake it, is there any kind of preamble or is there any kind of talk before the match of how many shakes you're going to do or you're just yes. going to do it once? Oh, there is. Okay. So what's the, what's the talk? You're going to shake it a few times? Or, or how does it go? Because it seems like you're... Really, in the moment, you shake it a couple times, and the crowd just literally um, is about to gasp from it. Yeah, in my recollection, uh, we had spoken about 
you know, because, you know, keep in mind, he's legitimately still screwed into this thing. You know, so it's not like, you know, he can just sort of go. To this day, I, I say, and I will to my dying breath, had Gary taken a flat back wrestling bump on that when I threw him down, I think it would have killed it. You know, I think it would still garnered some heat at that moment. But in the long run and watching that play back, I think most fans would say, ah, something looks familiar here. It's a flat back bump. And instead, because he's locked into that contraption. Uh, now, sidebar, what the fans, most fans at that moment didn't realize was that Gary was supposed to have the halo taken off the week before. And we had this upcoming ECW arena show and Paul called him and said, Hey, you know, if you can keep it on for an extra week, it'd be fantastic. And I'm, you'd have to ask Gary. I don't know if Paul ever explained to him what he had planned that night, but, uh, yeah, we had talked about the number of throws. And so I'm very clearly in my head counting out the one, two, three, four, five, when I would release them. Uh, but then from that moment, like from the moment I grabbed the halo, if you watch my face, you'll go me from being in character to throwing him down and then trying to digest and decipher what the crowd's response is. And if you watch it in slow motion, frame by frame, you'll see me go from the franchise fangs out, fuck you fans, to this sort of quizzical, like, where are we? This is strange. And then when the fans start pouring over the railing, like the yikes look on my face. Uh, you know, it was a very fast trajectory that we went from that to that. Uh, you know, but, you know, I knew Gary was fine. You know, first and most importantly, I knew Gary was fine because, you know, we had timed it out so carefully and, uh, you know, up to that point, everything is as planned out beforehand. It wasn't until the fans started jumping the rail that I don't think I knew I hadn't conceived of. You know, I'm just wrestling in front of a group of wrestling fans that get this. And I don't think Gary could have conceived of it. I know Paul Heyman didn't conceive of it. Contrary to whatever he tells you, I knew this and I knew that. I know he didn't plan on that. You know, that that's you can't plan on that kind of reaction in a wrestling audience, what we call white heat. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, it's like the white rhino. You know, he exists supposedly. You hear somebody that talked to somebody that talked to somebody that talked to somebody that saw it. But trust me, it's real. Uh, same thing in wrestling when you hear the term white heat. You know, you... You hear a story in the locker room from somebody that heard it from somebody that heard it from somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody, and it's real. Um, it wasn't until that moment in my career, the yikes moment, that I realized, holy shit, this is a real thing, and this ain't good. You know, you're you're in a, I don't care how tough you are or how strong you are or how proficient you are at your craft. When you're in a room of 1,100 plus people shoehorned into that building and every single one of them wants to get their hands on you to tear you to pieces. And you've also, by the way, got a 100-pound beauty queen laying ringside face down that has no idea any of this is going on. It's a pretty damn scary moment. You know, it, it, uh, 
today sitting here talking about it, I can talk about it with pride that it worked the way that we hoped it had. But in that moment, I don't think if you said, I'll give you a million dollars to do it again in that exact moment that I would do it because honest to God, I didn't know that I was going to get out of the arena one piece. Uh, it was terrifying. And the most terrifying moment of that exit from the building were those two guys in full riot gear, helmets and you know, bulletproof vests and shoulder pads and everything came around that corner. When I saw Tommy Dreamer looking out from the dressing room, holding the curtains back, and I saw the look on his face, uh, my heart sunk to my toes. Because I thought, I'm not getting home alive. Uh, I'm in trouble here. That, that was the look that Tommy Dreamer, I saw on Tommy Dreamer's face, sheer terror. And I wasn't about to turn around and see the, the barrel of a gun to the back of my head. That's what, cause that's what I thought. Like there's somebody's got a gun, somebody's got a chainsaw, somebody's got something vicious to the back of my head. And that's why Tommy's looking like that. As I'm trying to drag Francine's feet up underneath her, you know, next to me, I'm dragging her along like my school books. Uh, a terrifying moment, a really terrifying moment. And one that I would choose not to relive if I didn't have to. It was a riot, which is crazy because those fans are considered to be, you know, the quote unquote smarter fans and they're supposedly think they know where everything is going or, you know, they say inside terms. They they feel like they know the booking or they know uh, what's going to yeah. happen next and they can figure it out. So is it almost even more of white heat? It's almost like you tricked the the tricksters there and you even got over on the smartest of fans with and you know, and caused a riot. So that's almost like a double whammy. Well, tr I mean, truth be known, again, and this is not, you know, you know, calling something that something it's not. The, those fans in that building by that point in 1996 had seen some of the most cutting edge at that time angles in wrestling uh, uh, history. I mean, these were especially in America, these were things that you might have read something similar, something in the same vein from Mexico or from Japan, somewhere else, but never in America. And suddenly here on our back doorstep, uh, you know, where the Liberty Bell sits, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is this insanity going on. And those fans had seen everything. They had seen Brian Lee take a bump off of a swinging scaffold 40 feet above the, the ring. Uh, they had seen Terry Funk and, and Mick Foley set people on fire. They had seen Terry Funk and Sabu battle out to where Terry Funk was literally entombed in barbed wire. Uh, these fans had seen everything that I just stated and everything in between. They had seen it all. If there were a smart mark on the planet at that time, it was these 1,100 fans. And yet they reacted that way. You know, they, and I, I, the only way I can ever sort of gauge it out in my head is that they were always trying, you know, if you always try to outthink the thinker, sometimes you might get right, you might get close, and sometimes you're going to be off by a million miles. It's just a question that you believe that you're thinking the same way he thinks, in this case, Paul Heyman, but you're just a little bit smarter. Uh, 
clearly in that moment, nobody in that building had an inkling of what Paul Heyman was thinking. Nobody had an inkling of what Gary and I had planned. And they reacted viscerally. Uh, they let their guts get the better of them. And the television that it created, the footage that it created, was golden. You know, again, not somebody want to relive at that moment, but from a wrestling point of view, the footage that that created, the reaction of the fans, not just in their gasps or in their fangs or in their reactions, uh, it was far beyond anything that any of us could have hoped for. Uh, thank God nobody got killed in the process, namely a certain guy that likes to wear black and gold. <laughs> hmm. It was pretty scary. The thing is that made it so great, too, is that if anybody was a, a fan of ECW after this point and they would watch on MSG Network uh, like we did or, or any of the different channels, those little commercials that the, you know the, of the tapes and of the shows that they'd have or they'd show those different incidents, they, you know, they always show Brian Lee and Tommy Dreamer or, you know, different spots. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. oh, just great, icon iconic, legendary moments W. That one is one of the ones where you're just like, holy shit. Like, it always is like a shocker. It always is one of those things that's like, oh, my God, I still can't believe that happened. So it really, really cemented you, especially going from Dean Douglas to coming back, kind of being a face a little bit, feuding with Foley a little bit, you know. Um, going after the ECW TV title, but that really cemented you back as the franchise, as the top heel, as the guy that threw down the NWA title. You know, that really puts you back on the map. Did you feel like you needed that at that point? The fact that, you know, you wanted to cement yourself as a top heel, or did you think, hey, I'm going to get there anyway? No. Uh, my return to ECW was nothing certain. All I knew was I wanted to get the hell out of there. Um, I knew shortly after I got there with quotation marks around it, that that was the wrong mistake. Uh, and I must've known leading up to it because it took me six trips, six or seven trips going and meeting with Vince and listening to his bullshit and his lies. And, uh, before I finally signed it, I remember, you know, typically after you would sign that kind of a contract, I would think you'd walk away thinking like you'd be excited. You know, instead, my reaction in leaving there was something doesn't feel right. And I remember it distinctly. And, you know, me trying to explain to my ex-wife, you know, why I was thinking that way. And it just didn't feel right. It was not a jubilant time in my career. But I figured I'll forge ahead and I'll make this work. Uh, you know, so my return to ECW was anything but a short. It, you know, it was just as likely in my mind that the fans would say, fuck you, get the fuck out of here. We don't ever want to see you again. You're a piece of shit. As it would have been for them to accept the franchise character back. And I think Paul knew that. I, I'm, I'm sure he knew that. You know, you couldn't just bring me back and put me back in the same position. And, you know, I think it's part of why Paul, upon my initial return... had me and Raven do those matches where the fans, I think, believed, well, Shane Douglas is back. He's going to get the title back. And so from there, it was an easy swerve. First of all, Ray, Scotty and I always had great chemistry. We could always have a great match. We trusted each other and, you know, valued each other, what each other brought to the table. 
And so from there, once the, once you realize the fans expect a certain conclusion, it's easy to take them on a swerve. So all you got to do is do the right false finishes leading up to the finish, and at that point you got them. Uh, so I, I I'm sure that Paul knew. In my return, it couldn't just be, hey, Shane Douglas is back, everybody. Roll out the red carpet. It had to be Shane Douglas is back. And all. If you, in case you've forgotten, here's what a piece of shit this guy is. Uh, and I think that's what Paul went with. Now, it's obviously been said by Gary Wolf, whether it be in documentaries or, or whatever, shooting interviews, he always harbored some bitterness towards you uh, about the incident. So after the incident happens, after the halo throw, what is the plan? Like, what does Heyman tell you is the booking plan? Because I'll get to it later on, you know, right after the answer this, but it's not where I thought it was going to go. So where, where, you know, where did the, where did, I guess, was it supposed to go as far as the aftermath of this whole thing? Well, he never laid the whole thing out to me, but I, to be honest, if, if your question or the way you'll set it up is going to be uh, in the same vein. I don't think it's where Gary thought it was going to go. Uh, I I figured that the natural conclusion of that angle was to drop the belt to Gary at some point. And, you know, if you want to put it back on the franchise, there's a million ways you can do that. But I always thought that there had to be some avenues for that. And, I think in hindsight, you know, knowing, you know, the, the, the expanse of the ECW experiment, I think that Paul must have thought at that point in moving forward, you know, each time you come from a booker standpoint, when you come to a, 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 an angle between wrestler A and wrestler B, you have to come to the decision and, and try to figure it as best you can at that moment in time what wrestler do I get the most longevity out of, you know? And so it's not just a episode by episode decision. Like so you can say, okay, episode today, we're going to drop the belt to Gary Wolf. And then a week or two or a month or two down the road, we'll drop it back to Shane. Uh, you know, this is a, you're going to take an additional step back and look at the dynamics of the company. And, you know, Paul would have had a much closer look at those that I would have at that time. Um, I, I always figured, and, and I think Francine can attest to this, that we would at some point drop that belt to Gary Wolf. And when that didn't happen, and then we moved beyond that, uh, you know, I, I know Gary was disappointed. Um, you know, but from my point of view, I can only keep looking forward. I, I couldn't stop and, look back and think, well, last week we should have did this or should have done that. This was a, you know, a constantly moving, like a, like a, like a shark. If you stop swimming, you drown. You got to keep moving forward. And, you know, I, there was always, in my mind, there was always the possibility of going back to the Gary, where you could always throw Shane Douglas versus Gary Wolf anywhere. And you've got an instantly built in angle. Now, so the fans that didn't or don't remember, or didn't watch at that time. This angle was months in the building. From the time of the injury until the time of the, the throwdown, I think was close to three months. Uh, he was locked into that thing for, for a pretty long time. And during that time is the time that we were doing all of these incredibly tasteless, uh, 
really in poor taste vignettes. Um, you know, the, the, the one of me swimming in the, in the ship pond, uh, there was one of me in a, in a wheelchair out in the middle of the night. Cause was the only time we could film without getting thrown off there, uh, outside of a hospital. Uh, there were there's just week after week after week of these really, really tasteless, uh, condescending and, I, I don't know. I can't think of a, another synonym to use or adjective to use. I mean, they, they were really, really tasteless and lowbrow promos that Francine and I were cutting. And But, oh, it, you know, again, in hindsight, again, we got the Bill Watts uh, adage, black at white at that wrestling. Once you watch those vignettes, and especially after weeks and months of watching, this replay of this move and, and then these, this week's tasteless vignette and next week, the move and this, that week's tasteless vignette. You know, it was pretty clear that the franchise character in Francine had zero redeeming qualities. You know, if, if the planet ended today, the one place we weren't going was the heavens. We were going anywhere else, but to heaven. And that was the meaning of that whole vignette. It was a to elevate the franchise and Francine characters. Uh, unfortunately, you know, you you could look at that and say that was at the expense of Gary Wolf. Uh, but as a company, you got to look at it. I think more from the point of view of if ECW's and I hate to use this phrase, Hulk Hogan, Bruno San Martino, Ric Flair is the franchise Shane Douglas, then we have to go down a dark path. You can't just say, well, here's Shane Douglas, and now we're going to make him a good guy, and everything's all sunny and cheery, and let's all cheer the franchise. Uh, the ECW promotion was the dichotomy to everything you were seeing in sports entertainment at that time. So if Shawn Michaels was lamenting the loss of his smile in the WWE, hmm. uh, then ECW was taking you on a much more real world journey you know that well fuck that guy and losing his smile here's a guy with a broken neck that just got thrown down uh it was just a it was reality versus tv and you know I, I, the fact that you still hear ecw chance today solidifies to me that the fans believed one of those to be better than the other you, you'd be the judge of which it is very, very ECW-esque that the heel in this situation, which you, goes over in the feud. Not only do you go over, you get the girl, you take the girl, you beat the guy up, you break his neck, and then his big friend, or, you know, quote-unquote, could be like his big brother, fused with you. You think he's going to kick your ass, and you beat him too. And then all the way leading up to yes. you winning the world title and becoming the biggest heel. It is interesting that that happens. What were your kind of thoughts that the heel... Is is winning the feud, but not only that, gets the girl, breaks the neck, kicks the guy's ass again, and then kicks his friend's ass. Well, that was that's a lot cleaner and more succinct uh, view than it was from traversing it. Uh, when I first came back <laughs> from WWF, uh, there was there was a long, extended period where Paul Heyman and I never spoke. 
not because I wouldn't speak to him because he totally ignored me. And I think that was sort of my penance. How dare you go there and then want to come back? Um, and I remember thinking to myself, like I would, I would make an attempt to talk to him each week, and you know, if, if it wasn't, uh, you know, very evident that he was going to talk back to me, uh, then I would walk away. Like, I didn't give a fuck, you know. It's just some of my paycheck, and that's what he would do. I'd get, you know, I'd. Dame, my, my driver and my friend Damien would bring my check to me and say, Paul said to give this to you or whatever. And it went like that for an awful long time, months and months after my return. And in the meantime, I think that there was always, for at that point, before putting the world title back on me, uh, A, there was a sense, not just in Paul's mind, but in the fans' minds that I had paid a long enough penance. Like I'm back and you know, the in the fans' minds they saw me in the in the dance for that title one way or another. But I think wisely, brilliantly, Paul didn't just say, Okay, Shane Douglas is back. Raven, I'm gonna pit you against him. I want you to give him the best damn match you can and slide him over. Which I think would have been the ships. You know, so in the fans' minds they saw Shane Douglas come back and go through this gauntlet of, of sorts, you know, that he's going for the TV title. And then there's this whole side thing with a broken neck and Gary Wolf. And then, you know, to me, the, one of the penultimate moments of that match between Gary Wolf and I, after the throwdown is when he gets his head caught in the ropes and Francine climbs up and she's tightening the ropes on his neck. What a phenomenal storytelling point that is, you know, and, and for the fans at home, you don't have to sit there and have Joey Styles explain what that moment is. Francine's doing this because of this or this, let the fans minds journey with it. Let their imaginations run wild. And, you know, sometimes if you don't paint every tiny corner of the room, the fans will fill in those points and their imaginations will take it to a place far beyond anything. Now, how's party 97? It's got got disconnected. Ah, their, their imaginations will take it far to far crazier and deeper places than, than you ever could from a booking standpoint anyway. So to me, when I watch that match back and I see Franny up there, climbing that rope in her beautiful outfit and grabbing that, you know, the ring hammer and tightening that rope on Gary Wolf's neck. She, she comes off in, in some ways even more evil than the franchise because she knows this guy and she's, she's seen what he's been through. And in spite of all that, she's still willing to climb up that rope and do this. Uh, and now the rest of it is still in the blank. You as a fan watching at home, fill in the blank. Is she just being a bitch? It, has he done, has Gary Wolf done something to her previous that has brought this on? And it just opens up an entire different avenue. One that I think Paul wanted to revisit in, in later years and never got the chance. Just wanted to mention House Party 97, he beat you by count out. So you lose, but not really good way to 
yeah. keep you strong. Um, Hostile City Showdown, you beat him in an I Quit match, which was interesting. And then, obviously, Barely Legal, you beat Pitbull number two in a TV title match. So you keep winning. So let me play devil's advocate here for a second, and, 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 mm-hmm. I'll, and I'll be Heyman. Okay. You got Shane Douglas, and you got Gary Wolf, and even Pitbull, and then Anthony Durante, Pitbull number two as well. But just looking at you from, from the perspective, it's like, okay, this guy, good worker, meaning Shane, is a good worker, can draw money. I know him from the past. He's been our anchor. He's a franchise. I can do well with him. And you kind of look at Gary Wolfman. He's like, I don't know if he's money. Uh, he's good with certain guys. He's good in the tag team. You kind of look at Durant. He's like, okay, he's more charismatic. He's kind of that guy, you know, when he walks in the room, like, who the fuck is that guy? You know, like, he just has a presence about him. But it's like, yeah. you look at them, it's like, and, and just thinking, it's like, okay, those guys aren't going to draw me money. Shane's going to draw me money. Do you think that goes through Heyman's mind? Because that's what I'm thinking. That he's like, okay, I'm going to give him Francine, and it's going to, you know, it's going to put him over the top. And then, you know, this guy is going to end up, you know, bringing ECW to, to new heights. I don't know about these Pitbull guys in the grand scheme of things. I don't think that they're going to be long time big draw, big money avenue guys. Well, I, I you know, it, it's hard to argue against that point of view, other than to say that the Pitbulls. Uh, traditionally and, and and very often had pretty good matches in ACW. Um, to me, the one thing that always, at least in my mind, kept them from ascending to that next level was that there, A, they didn't look alike. One had hair, one didn't. Uh, you know, Gary looked more like a guy trying to get a break in movies, a good looking guy with that hair and that body. Anthony was like, like you slice your throat. You know, like he could be the, the golden state killer. Um, and there was just something that between those two characters, even though they were almost identical, you know, as far as their personalities were, uh, they, they just didn't match up. You know, you look at the Dudleys, you know, even though one's black and one's white, they, fit together like a glove uh you know the uh, the, uh, the eliminators Perry saturn and john Cronus. Uh, you know very different look to those two but their style was so seamless uh gary and anthony had almost i don't want to say two opposing styles but two differing styles you know where uh gary was more like a wrestler in the vein of wrestling Anthony was more the power guy. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've never, you know, I've, I've always thought about, like, what what was the lacking cement that they didn't have that glued them together? What was that? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if anybody can define what it was. But there was something that those two just didn't quite seem to fit together uh, in the fans' minds, and I think from that point of view, um, that you know, and Paul never told me that. I mean, that's my own personal assessment. Uh, I think that Paul saw that, you know, for all the reasons, you know, Shane Douglas is back at this point, ninety-six. I'm back. I'm fourteen, fifteen-year veteran in the business. Uh, I had been a former world tag team champion with Ricky Steamboat. I, 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 I'd seen 
you know, at, at that point, I'd seen everything in, in the business that there was to offer the pay per views, live television, uh, live pay per views. I mean, uh, you know, the, the top of the heap, the money draw guy, uh, you know, I'd seen all that, you know, how those guys all carried themselves and how all of that, you know, you can't just say, okay, here's a new kid in the business. He's really good at what he does. Let's slap a belt on him, make him the world champion. He's now the leader of the dressing room. All you veterans, pay attention to him. Doesn't work that way. And uh, in that dressing room, I was the, the guy, other than Paul uh, uh, Terry Funk, and later, you know, shortly thereafter, Bam Bam Bigelow coming. I was the guy that had the vast majority of the experience in the industry. And, you know, I think from that point of view, just from a purely business standpoint, Paul Heyman looking at that, if, if anybody looking around that dress room would most likely say, that's the guy to go forward with. Uh, the fact that he put Francine with me when I came back, I think only cemented that. You know, it wasn't like he was going to take this guy back, put him through this purgatory of not talking to him, then put this beautifully smoking hot valet with him and then just beat him. That just didn't make sense. It was very clear if you look at the way Paul slowly built things, A to B to C to D, and the franchises returned to ECW, that Paul Heyman had something much bigger, much grander up his sleeve than just the Shane Douglas that you remember leaving. It definitely seems like he was using the pitfalls to elevate you back to where should have been that's at the top of the card and especially top of the card is the heel did gary wolf ever resent you after this or what's kind of your relationship after this because just from shoot interviews and reading stuff it doesn't seem like not that he dislikes you but it seems like there's a little bit of resentment there yeah well look i mean from a from a natural progression as when you're inside this industry and you come to think of a quote-unquote storyline or an angle, okay? I do this, you do this, this happens, this is where we go. Uh, and some strong percentage, I don't want to put a number on it because then, you know, there's no way of guessing, but in some strong percentage of the time when those things happen, you know, a guy gets his neck broken, uh, you know, the, the guy that, quote-unquote, parentheses around it, does it, uh, is just recently back from that place. Um, it's easy to see how, you know, the person that that happened to could say, oh, I know where this is going to go. We're going to have a match, and I'm going to win the belt and move on, and, and ascending up the, the ladder that way. So from the point that we know from history that Paul Heyman didn't go that route, that you can understand how Gary would be disappointed, um, expecting that it would go another route. And that was always my take on it, that Gary expected that, you know, A would lead to B, would lead to C, would lead to D, in asymmetrical fashion. And when that didn't happen, um, there was never that I ever garnered any heat between me and Gary in the dressing room other than the occasional interview that I would do 
and somebody would say, well, Gary Wolf said this, or Gary Wolf told us that. Um, but Gary and I have always gotten along great. Um, and, you know, continue to, and, and, and this is one of those things that you can, you know, drive yourself crazy with looking back and saying, well, this should have, could have, would have happened. Um, you'd have to ask Paul Heyman that ultimately the person that would decide it was Paul Heyman. And, uh, there was never a time that Paul Heyman came to me and said, I'm thinking of going this direction instead of the direction we went and, you know, waited for my opinion. That was not the way Paul Heyman and I worked. Paul Heyman would come to me and give me a, an idea that he had for a predestined finish that he wanted to get to. If I disagree with that predestined finish, I would, you know, voice my opinion. I can't remember once that Paul Heyman my opinion over his own decision making case in point uh when al snow when i worked with al snow at the uh georgia show the georgia pay-per-view i was in such bad shape physically uh that i shouldn't have been in the arena let alone in the ring and i honest to god went to paul and all but begged him to drop that belt out snow. And again, my thinking being, if, if you want to put the, the belt back on me, when I'm physically well enough, we can do that. But for right now, I should be nowhere near this ring. And Paul Heyman just blew me down every time. Now, I don't know what he was privy to. You know, we're getting into the period now when, you know, when we can all surmise, Paul was back alley channeling with Vince McMahon and negotiating, taking his money, whatever. Uh, but all I know is that my protestations aside, Paul Heyman would not take that belt off me and put it on Al Snow. Um, there were other times when I fought to bring wrestlers into ECW that Paul shot down. I honestly can't think of any time that Paul ever took my opinion and went with it. Um, Cody Michaels, case in point. Uh, I pushed hard for Cody Michaels to come in. We had a match in ECW Rainy that Cody really did well enough in, I thought, to be brought in. And uh, you know, again, I can't think of any point where I ever went to Paul and said, how about this? Or how about that? And that he said, okay, great. Let's do that. Uh, it, it was, it was more like in that vein that I was always at odds with Paul, always fighting uphill, always, you know, fighting for something or trying to, to get somebody in or whatever. And I can't remember it. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't a time, but on the top of my head, I can't think of a time that Paul said, well, I was thinking about doing A, but now after hearing him, I'm going to go with B. I can't remember a time that Paul did that. Interesting, the relationship between you and him. It doesn't seem like you guys are really communicating that well, but in his head, he kind of seems like he definitely has a plan for you, and he definitely sees bigger things 
in your horizon for sure. Is there you are you guys ever uh, at a good point where you where you definitely for sure know where you're headed as far as around this angle, basically like around barely legal? Because you don't really have no. a big spot on on that card, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah, no, Paul. Paul, I, I can't. All I can speak is from my own personal opinion with Paul. My my personal experience. Uh, my first go around in ECW when he first took over, he communicated communicated quite openly with me. Um, you know, this is where we're going to go. This is what we're thinking. The whole thing with the NWA belt throwdown. Uh, I'm thinking this or this. Here's the pros and cons of each. Uh, he gave me much more latitude. When I came back that time after being in WWF in 96, it was almost like the jealous girlfriend that didn't trust you. Um, hmm. He wouldn't talk to me, like I said earlier. They're uh, only scantily communicated with me through somebody else, whether it was through Damian Farron, through Francine, through uh, uh, Chris Candido, through somebody in the dressing room, there'd be a message delivered to me. Uh, but it really was like the uh, high school when you screw around on the girlfriend and she found out and now she wouldn't talk to you. Uh, it really was like that with Paul when I came first came back. and. It didn't matter to me. You know, Paul and I had never had that kind of buddy-chummy relationship before. For validation. It wasn't to hear three, four, or five uh, to make complete. Products and in front of those fans. And that's all I cared about. Um, and I think in hindsight, Paul saw the character back in his locker room. His personal feelings aside, uh, you know, you've got a, 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 a seasoned guy that has experience in this arena that in large part helped build this place. But you can't just give the keys to the kingdom. You know, truth be known, if the tables had been turned. If I was running the company and Paul had left and come back, I probably would have done the exact same thing to Paul coming back. If, uh, so I, I didn't take it as condescending or, gee, Paul doesn't like me. That was never part of the equation. I knew what Paul was doing. I figure when the time is right, uh, he'll, he'll open up and act like nothing ever happened, and that was exactly what happened with Paul. Seems like if you go, you, you and Gary Wolf were to have matches, whether it be one on one matches, you wouldn't lose, so you, or you'd lose by counter, you wouldn't lose face. And then even on the house shows, you, you beat them on the house shows. They may be the Pitbulls may beat you in a tag match, whether it be with Luke Coley or, or, you know, or whoever, but you're not taking the pin. So he definitely has an idea for you. He's definitely keeping you strong. But it is kind of interesting that really the Pitbulls don't really. I'm not going to say do much, but they're kind of just not where they, or I guess where you thought they'd be. And basically by the end of 97, they're kind of 
out of uh, ECW, and obviously you you become the world champion, and then into '98, and you have the longest title run in ECW. So it's interesting what happens there. Is there ever any communication with you and Gary Wolf after this? Is there, you know, is there anything as far as not not really friendship per se, but maybe indie scene something like that as far as the '90s are concerned? There was a uh, a period, you know, where I would hear scuttlebutt through somebody that spoke to somebody type of thing. Uh, you know, that Gary wasn't happy about this and or, or that, whatever. Um, but every time I professionally spoke to Gary, whether it was in a dressing room, on the phone, dealing with something else, uh, setting up Hardcore Homecoming in 2005, any, any dealings I ever have with him on a one-to-one level, we always got along great. You know, so in this business, when you have that kind of dynamic and you have all these sort of sidebar, second, third uh, generation comments, you know, you, you somehow, at least in my mind, have a uh, tendency to sort of pack those aside compartmentalize those and put those aside. Not that you're saying they didn't happen, but I always took Gary Wolf as being a pretty straightforward guy and a man. And if he had a real issue with me on anything that happened on that, I thought that I had been underhanded or somehow masterminded that angle. He never said it to me. Um, you know, we've spoken multiple times since, you know, since 2018, this is quite some time later. Uh, we've spoken about it several times since. And when we get to the point of the bump, you know, where he breaks his neck, there's always sort of like a joking disconnect. Well, you know, yeah, well, okay, that's what you say. Or no, that's what you say. Um, but I vividly remember that night uh, and the day leading up to that bump. You know, and him talking about taking it like a DDT and, you know, so many times that I was literally going in the back in the dressing room, explaining to him through body motion, you bend over and when you, I come off and I do this, I'm going to pull you not this way, this way. Uh, and he kept saying, no, I'm going to take it like a DDT, I'm going to take it like a DDT. To the point that I just figured, he's fucking with me, you know, he, this is either Todd Gordon's put him up to this or somebody has, because I just didn't see that he would just so whimsically, uh, write off what I'm explaining to him. You know, that doesn't matter. I'm going to do this anyway. And, uh, lo and behold, it comes to that particular move in that four way, that four way dance with me and Scorpio and, and Anthony that that whole spot transpires. And when it happened, like I said, as soon as I hit, it just had a sickening thud that in my head knew wasn't right. You know, there was, there was just something missing from it. And, you know, of course the follow-up we've spoken about, um, you know, it just seemed to me to all be way too convenient. You know, Gary telling me he's going to take this in a way that I've, implored him not to do and then todd gordon being the one to call me on monday morning telling me what's going on to me it just smelled 
like a classic ECW rib setup. Now, Shane, how about the detour that you kind of take while they're, I don't know if they're putting it together while Gary's convalescing and healing up, but you take a, a pretty big detour in the coming months. And as you got into November to remember in, in 96, you know, you, the bulldozer for hire, Brian Lee is brought in and the triple threat is reformed. And then, you know, not to shake a stick at the fact that you're now in an angle with Terry Funk and Tommy Dreamer in a pretty big spot again on November to remember 96. Like, where did that detour kind of come from? Was it just to get through the healing process of, of Gary and the Pitbulls? Well, first of all, Terry Funk and Tommy Dreamer and the franchise, they were natural antitheses to the franchise character. You know, Tommy Dreamer being the younger version, Tommy or Terry Funk being the legendary version. The franchise was the bridge between those two characters, and so they all intersect at one point. And for I, at this time is when I'm starting to envision. It hasn't quite coalesced in my head yet, but we've got to have a heel stable here in ECW. Now, any promotion I ever watched had. In the old days, the WWWF had the Valiant Brothers. Uh, the NWA had the Four Horsemen. The, you know, there were always these stables of heels that ran roughshod. You know, I read about Humperdinck Stable in Florida. You know, there were always these heel stables that run roughshod over the promotion that somehow seemed to transcend the promotion. You know, the Four Horsemen, in some many ways, were bigger than the NWA. Humperdinck Stable, when it was in operation, was in many ways bigger than Florida Championship Wrestling. Uh, you know, and you had Hyde International and UWF. And in some ways, those heel stables had a way of transcending beyond the promotion and becoming bigger than. So I knew in the back of my head, if ECW was to become what we all hoped it to become, that it had to have a heel stable and one that was legitimate. You couldn't just say, here's, uh, here's wrestler A, here's wrestler B and C and D. We'll call them the quattro horsemen or whatever. You had to, it had to be legitimate. It had to be something different. It had to be something legitimate. And when Brian, you know, I, I had no idea that Brian Lee would like just poof one day be gone. And almost as if by divine intervention, right behind his departure, the beast from the east, Bam Bam Bigelow, the, you know, I mean, larger than life, comes walking into ECW. And it, like cement in my head, made sense. So I think in between all of that, you know, there's this sidetrack with uh, Tommy Dreamer and, and Terry Funk, the, the beginnings of the uh, triple threat uh, was all a segue to the eventual Shane Douglas versus Gary Wolf. At that point in time, though, in my mind, I had no, my full thinking was that Paul Heyman will drop the title to him. And if he wants to put it back on me, I mean, you know, you knew the franchise character was always going to be a guy in contention for the belt. Does he need to carry the belt every week? No, everybody knows he's a, he's a, he's a candidate. Um, but when he didn't go that route, you know, at that point in time, you don't look as a, as a wrestler in the business and say, well, geez, that's fucked up. You know, I, sh I really should lose this to this guy, and we should go back and revisit this. I mean, ultimately, when you're looking at a wrestling card, a promoter, what a promoter is, is a director. And 
you know, like I just saw Ridley Scott, you know, in the uh, Blade Runner uh, bonus footage saying, a director directs. That's my job. Uh, I'm the guy that makes all the decisions. So Paul Heyman being the director, the IE booker, made all the decisions. Uh, so it, it, far be it for me to go to him and say, geez, Paul, this is really screwed up. We should do this and that or the other thing. I'm not the booker. And, uh, you know, at that point, the thing, the best thing for me to do is to look to the next chapter. What is the next thing? And in this case, it was the formation of the triple threat and moving forward in that direction. Uh, you know, it's, it's not my job as a wrestler on a card on a, any promotion to say, I agree or disagree with this and I will, or I won't do that. Uh, ultimately it becomes a decision. If you're on a movie, imagine I'm on a movie set, right? And the director comes to me and says, okay, today, Shane, we're going to shoot your death scene. All right, well, wait a second. Let's go talk about this. Let's go to my trader and talk about this. I'm the franchise Shane Douglas. I can't die. Uh, I'm pretty sure that any director on any movie set would say, either you die today or we replace you in the movie with somebody else. And, and so ultimately, there, there really is a, a reaffirmation of what the hierarchy in wrestling is. As a wrestler on the card, my job is to do what the booker, quote-unquote director, says to do, or I can be fired and they can bring somebody else in to do it. Uh, now, that said, it doesn't mean that every time in my career I was in full agreement and just went along, there were times that I had sidebars. But any time that a, a promoter, quote-unquote, slash director said to me, I'm committed to this, this is the direction we're going. At that point, I was smart enough to let that drop and move on. There was never need to have that discussion with Paul. It was evident from what Paul had laid out in his booking uh, as to where he was going with that entire angle. I think the fantasy booker in the fan sees it on paper and sees Tommy Dreamer defending his friends, the Pitbulls. And you see the triple threat coming together. So you almost see that six-man of, of Dreamer and the Pitbulls versus Shane and the triple threat and you've seen that being like a culmination at one of the large-scale events. Not yet pay-per-view, but one of the big-time, you know, midline events that ECW had. But one thing that you've mentioned on this show that I find very, very interesting is you talk about how Gary Wolf was a little um, questioning how the move was going to go down, but telling you how he wanted to take the move. But also, in, in a past episode, you mentioned how when you were working with Anthony Durante that he was opposed to some of the things that you wanted to do, but you said maybe at yeah. the, the, you know, the, the, the little bird on his shoulder uh, simply ravishing uh, at the time and Rick yeah. Rude telling him to maybe go opposed to you. Now, do you kind of scratch your head at the fact you're the veteran in this scenario? You're the heel, and you got to really take the lead here. So the fact that both members of that team had opposed you at certain points, I just kind of find that to be fascinating. Well, again, you know, look, look from my point of view. So, you know, I'm the guy that's had the luxury or the, the, the good fortune to have taken the traditional route in the wrestling industry. I had worked my way up through the Indies, got my foot in the door, went to UWF and the NWA and 
know, all the fans know my trajectory in the business. So uh, it's easy for me to look and see that somebody that maybe didn't have that same pedigree could look and see, well, this is the natural progression of things. Um, I couldn't go back and just plug my brain hard, you know, take a, uh, a sinking cord and link my brain and all my experience to Gary Wolf or to anybody and explain why they're getting the cart ahead of the horse. Uh, all I knew was that I, I knew the industry from where I'd come from. And, you know, it feeds back to some of these promos I see today, videos I see today, people talking about the heat Shane Douglas had in the dressing room and why Shane Douglas had heat in the dressing room, whatever. Uh, all I was merely trying to do in that dressing room was lay down the exact same lessons that have been taught to me over time. And perhaps maybe doing an abbreviated, more forced fashion, because we didn't have the luxury of time in ECW. We didn't have the luxury of saying, well, you know, past three weeks from now. In ECW, everything was that ECW arena event. Any time along that timeline, uh, as effective and as revered as ECW was, any time along that trajectory, when that ECW arena came up, had that arena not been chalk full busting at the seams we might not have been back three weeks from then that's literally how hand to mouth we were uh you know todd gordon you know his family has money and you know in the jewelry business he ain't a vince mcmahon he ain't a dixie carter and wasn't then there was not an unlimited reserve of capital for us to draw upon Hence, that ECW Arena show in every three weeks was incredibly important to the survival of ECW. Uh, so for me, my job wasn't to sit there in the dressing room and cross-reference, cross-question, and then go to Paul and take those concerns that in my head I have when I don't have the slightest clue of where Paul Heyman has taken his booking. I remember one time in the dressing room, uh, Dusty Rhodes, when he was getting pretty exacerbated by everybody trying to second guess his booking. Dusty walks into the dressing room one day with a piece of paper and a marker in his hand. Doesn't say a word. Walks to the front of the dressing room, turns his back, and he's doing something can't tell what he's doing he's just doing something with his back turned to the dressing room he turns around and he said for all those of you that think you can second guess my booking if you're so smart tell me what you see here and he holds up a piece of paper folded in half with what looked like half a circle on it he said what's on this paper well after a couple seconds you know you hear a voice in the back it's a ball it's a this it's a that you know, no, nobody come out and saying, hey, I'm Shane Douglas and I think it's this, or I'm so-and-so and I think it's that. It's just selected voices around the dressing room. After about 30 seconds when nobody got it right, and I mean nobody came close, Dusty didn't open his mouth. He reached up and he unfolded the paper, and it was a 
picture of an Easter egg. And the only part we saw was the bottom third of the egg that looked like half of a ball. And on the top parts, we had all the decorations. And all he said before he left was, until you see the full picture, don't open your mouth. And he walked out. And it always, always resonated with me, always stuck with me that, you know, even when I was in ECW, you know, I thought I had an idea. I thought I knew, but I wasn't about to put my ass out there on the line and call Paul Heyman at the carpet if I wasn't sure where his booking was going. And as with Dusty's experiment, you couldn't know where his uh, booking was going. And so it wasn't my place to go out there and call him to the carpet and suddenly go to task for what I don't even know what the hell I'm fighting for. That's an unbelievable uh, comparison. And to, to take away from that, I'm sitting here trying to guess what it was too. <laughs> Just thinking of this imaginary yeah. piece of paper, but that's uh, that's quite the symbolism. But, you know, you talk about that having the time and having the, the ability, or excuse me, not having the time and not being able to maybe polish things up or, or make sure it's perfect and make sure it's this, make sure it's that. And it just makes me think about earlier this year where we watched that whole Sammy Callahan thing go down where he hit Eddie yeah. Edwards in the face with the bat, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and Sammy Callahan, whether he was trying to push an angle or not, you know, took a shot at you and said, you know, well, you broke Gary Wolf's neck and yada, yada, yada. And I'm hearing all the stuff that you said about the execution of the angle and how things have gone and this and that. And, and I just can't see how still, here we are six, seven months later after that, the two could even be brought up in the same breath. One, uh, uh, an accident performed to be executed absolutely perfectly into a storied angle, whereas the other one was a hot shot baseball bat breaking on somebody's face. It's just, it's funny to see how the two can materialize over a certain amount of time. Yeah, but ultimately it goes back again to, to Dusty Rhodesism. You turn chicken salad into chicken shit, or chicken shit into chicken salad, right? I mean, it's, uh, you really, at that point, have no choice. Uh, the point I was making with the whole Sammy Callahan, uh, uh, Edwards angle was that when you watch it, you can see that there's an incredible, uh, break in the decorum of what we do in the ring. Uh, when, if, if, if Chad or JP are going to lay down and let me drop a car from the top of the arena on top of you, if you're not 1,000, not 100, 1,000% certain that we have all the logistics figured out, then you're a fool for laying there because there's a couple thousand pound car dropping towards you right now. Um, at that point, it's far too late to make the decision should I have thought of this or should I have thought of that? Um, You've got to go through, but you know, again, ultimately comes down to once it happens, once the fuck up occurs, whether it's intended or not intended, how do you play off of that? Um, The whole point of me discussing uh, the, the, the Callahan Edwards angle was that I think our industry in totality has moved away from that thought. Uh, and it's not just Sammy and, and uh, Callahan and Edwards, uh, Eddie Edwards. It's, it's uh, the industry in mass. 
you know, when you watch the shows today and you can see, you know, someone like me, a seasoned guy like me, and you know, not because I'm smarter than anybody, but because I've spent this much of my professional life in this industry, I can watch a move and see if it's done properly or not. See if it's done with safety in mind or not. Now, that doesn't mean that an accident can't occur somewhere along the line. But in general, in the overall scheme of things, if safety is your number one foremost thought, and it's the number one foremost thought of your opponent, it is pretty highly unlikely that a, a serious injury is going to occur. Um, doesn't mean it can't, as you saw with Gary Wolf and I. Uh, you know, what we do is an imperfect science. But when you then start to move the parameters, uh, safety may or may not be as big an issue now, but I'll go out there and I'll try to take care. Uh, that's when you're almost guaranteeing something happening. And, you know, I don't fault Sammy Callahan and Eddie Edwards for trying to turn that into an angle. But how many times since that incident have we seen Similar incidences happen with other people uh, or with Sammy Callahan uh, and, you know, just keep extrapolating and taking this forward. You know, if, if, if safety isn't the foremost topic in that dressing room, then what is? Hey, when your eyeball's hanging from the socket, while the camera rolling to make sure it catches you, you're taken out the door to the hospital. Um, that's that's not a, an acceptable outcome to me. I'm not saying it can't happen in a match that I'm in or anybody else's in. But if it happens in the match that I'm in, it happened in spite of, not because of. And that is definitely a great point, especially about today's safety and wrestling. But I do want to go back to Hardcore Homecoming 2005. First of all, it's a part of the Extreme Reunion Tour. You beat Gary Wolf in a dog collar match. That's at the Golden Dome in Pittsburgh, PA. But then comes around November rain, also in 2005, Hardcore Homecoming. He actually finally, finally gets the win over you in a dog collar match at the ECW Arena. So it ends up being you're the one that finally kind of booked him get, getting a win you know, in, in the future. So what was the, the thought process behind that? Like, this guy finally should get the win after... Uh, you know, the heel is winning basically every match we've ever had? Well, sort of, yeah. Um, you know, first of all, when you're booking and the fans know you're booking, you're in a no-win situation. You, know, mm. you, you try to do the right thing and say, okay, I'm going to do this and because I think it's the right thing for booking. And regardless of whether it's the right thing or not, the fans take on it is all you're doing is pushing yourself. So much like we did in Cleveland in that tour, uh, it was a three-way dance with me, Sabu, and Jerry Lynn. And I couldn't think of I wanted one of them over. I couldn't think of which way to go. Um, you know, and so we, we sort of assembled in the back and went back. And they kept Jerry and Sabu both throwing back to me. Now you have to go over. And... I know. One of you guys asked, and we went back and forth like this for the longest time in the back. And the interesting and funny thing now about that story is 
my oldest son, who was five at the time, five or six, young, was with me. And, and this is when I lived in Florida. So uh, we were up here and visiting and we were staying at my mother's house uh, to visit her. And, you know, it's a nice point central to the shows in Pittsburgh and Cleveland. And, uh, you know, so back to the Agora Theater, you know, me and Sabu and uh, Jerry Leonard went back and forth. And, you know, I couldn't convince them. And they finally, okay, you got to be over. So I said, okay, well, then if we're going to do that. Then after that, I'll go to take the chain out. And you two, before I can use the chain, you two have to beat my ass down. So even though I get my hand raised, you two have to beat me down and then, you know, bloody my ass up afterwards. We go through this, and I'm not even contemplating that my five-year-old son's in the dressing room or not in the building watching. He's in the audience with my attorney, who's my roommate from college. And after the match, we're in the back and we're talking, and here comes Eric uh, Weissenberger, Judge Weissenberger now. Uh, and he's got my son in front of him, and he sort of points to Connor and then points to my, his forehead, like giving me the message, like, hey, no. he's a little bit worried, you know. And I said, are you okay, buddy? And my son just started bawling. And luckily for me, Jerry Lynn and Sabu were both within several feet of me. And so they came over and they pretty quickly dispelled to him that, you know, there was any problem between us, even though they leave me a, left me a bloody mess in the ring. Uh, so we go back to my mother's house that night and about five o'clock in the morning, I wake up and, you know, when you're like, you're awake, but you're not awake. And I'm thinking, I'm feeling, I can feel somebody looking at me. So I open my eyes and my son is laying there in the bed next to me. And he's, we're, our, our noses are about six inches apart. And the night before I had calmed his fears by telling him, daddy had just put paint on his forehead. And so that calmed him down. He believed that. So the next morning, about five o'clock in the morning, we're laying in the bed sleeping. And I open my eyes and my son's eyes are wide open. He's looking six inches away. He's looking me right in the eyes. That uh, you still have paint on your forehead <laughs> from the night before, and you know it was just such a, a fitting end to to that whole thing. And you know the, the point being that when you're in a booker's position, you know you, you can't win. If if the best thing to do for the company is is put your character over, and you do that, the trollers out there, the naysayers will say, "Oh, see, Shane Douglas just put himself over." Uh, if you don't do that then the ones that more keenly understand the business will say, why didn't Shane Douglas put himself over? And I'm not saying that in every situation that I'm, uh, I should go over. I'm just saying that in that situation, the no-one situation, that is why any time that I book, I prefer to not be on the card because it's just a no-one situation. You know, there's always going to be somebody out there. And this thing with the internet today, everybody has the right to, to, to their opinion. But I think in many ways, the internet provides an equal voice to some people that don't deserve. I mean, in, in professional wrestling, I would dare bet that Shane Douglas or anybody that's been in the business for 39 years 
has probably a better finger on the pulse of the industry than any 15, 20, 25, 30-year-old kid out there. Um, the same as when I take my car to the mechanic. I don't sit there and look over his shoulder and say, hey, I wouldn't turn that screw if I were you. I would turn the one next to it. Uh, if I know how to fix it, why the hell am I paying the mechanic in the first place? Uh, the internet's wonderful for a lot of things, the instant dissemination of information. But who's to decide if that information is accurate or not? And therein lies the rub of the internet. Um, so when you go on there and you read something, you're ready to pull pistols and go for the fight. Are you sure what you just read is legitimate? Because from my take of it, I see an awful lot of weakness in that sort of weak underpinning of the of the internet. You never quite know what's true and what's false out there. There's so much BS. But to kind of wrap up on everything, in 2014, you guys had a match. 2018, even, uh, for Bobby Fulton, not that long ago, a few months ago, you guys even had a match. So, obviously, you guys do still cross paths. So, is there anything, you know, now versus then, looking back, any sort of regrets, any sort of, um, you know, feelings about it? It, Did it go down exactly the way it should have? What are your kind of thoughts, then versus now? Well, uh, you know, the Booker brain that I have thinks that I would have definitely put Gary over at some point. Um, if not, uh, you know, in that first, very first meeting afterwards, at some point, because there was so much, especially after the vignettes that Franny and I had shot, there was so much negative energy built up against those characters. That, uh, you know, if you swerved them once, maybe twice, then you could swerve them again by going to, by swimming downstream, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, but I, I wouldn't have just made it a sidebar after the throwdown. You know, now, keep in mind, we're, we're discussing one of the more iconic uh, episodes in ECW history. You know, and in hindsight to the fans, it worked. You know, the, but I'm looking at it more from an all encompassing for all the guys on the card, you know, from top to bottom. I'm a firm believer, like ECW uh, demonstrated. It doesn't matter if Chris Jetty or Mikey Whipwrecker in match number one or Shane Douglas and Taz are in the main event. Everybody on that card should matter, should count. And did in ECW. Um, so at what point do you say, you know, this is too much or this is too little? Uh, I, I don't think it would have taken anything for ECW to have given Gary Wolf, especially after, you know, the, just the, the, the mountain of those disgusting promos and vignettes that Franny and I did, um, to have given him some comeuppance before stealing it back from him. I, I think that would have equaled out as much heat as we would have, as we garnered with the way that we went. Um, but, you know, I, I think in many respects, I can understand Gary's uh, feeling let down uh, that, you know, there was, you know, in his mind, you can imagine he, as he's convalescing with his neck, uh, broken neck uh, injury. And, you know, Francine and I are out there 
one of these these awful tasteless vignettes. You can almost in your mind see how this plays out, and then it doesn't play out that way. I think it's let down. And again, I don't think it would have been a let down to the fans. Like had we dropped, say for an example, ECW arena, the ECW arena show, the belt of Gary Wolf and any ECW fan would have said, well, that's it. Shane Douglas lost. I'm never going again. Or Francine and Shane Douglas lost. I'm never going to go see it again. Or Gary Wolf won and God has come up and I'm never going again. I just don't see where that would have played against the tune of what was to become the ECW legacy. So uh, I probably, as a booker, would have done something in that vein. Um, and I can, like I said, I can clearly see how Gary Wolf would have taken, you know, some uh, derision at the way things were done. But like I told him then, and, and I've told him since. You know, that is something you should have taken up with Paul Heyman. You know, that's, I've never seen a, a booker when, let's say, JP, you go in and fight my point for me. I've never seen a, a, a booker say, well, JP, you make a damn compelling point for Shane Douglas. I'm going to change it to what you say, and we're going to put Shane Douglas over. If Shane Douglas didn't have enough cojones, to step in there and, and, and fight his battle and make his point uh, any more than if I would have made Gary Wolf from it at that point. Um, I just think it, you know, it's easy to sit here and play Monday morning quarterback, but it's also easy for me having lived through that to put myself back in the nuts and bolts of that entire angle and, and, and play it out. Uh, my inclination as a booker would have been to, to figure it out a way to even ever so briefly to slid Gary Wolf over, if only to have him uh, get tripped up on the other side. Uh, but that would have been my inclination as a booker. Had that worked at the time, you know, we can all sit and surmise and guess today. But, uh, you know, it, it's hard to argue with Paul's success as a booker in ECW. He had a pretty good run. It is interesting the way it was booked. Obviously, you came out looking very strong, and, and obviously it led to bigger and better things or the return to prominence in ECW. But for those fans out there that maybe want to go back and watch the saga you know, and go through the many shows that you guys had and go through the Halo incident at Ultimate Jeopardy 96 and watch all these amazing moments, how would you kind of just sum it up for them and and, and talk about the just the pure passion of this feud, because to me, it's the or one of the most epic feuds in ECW, just for the standpoint of, wow, that was real, that was different, that was crazy, you didn't see that coming, riot, beat down, steal the girl, throw any, anything out that you want, it's just one of those amazing ECW feuds. How would you kind of sum it up? Well, it's easy today. Again, you know, hindsight is always going to be twenty twenty. I can watch a Steelers win or lose a game on Sunday, then Monday morning, come on here and say, or Monday evening on the podcast, say, boy, if yesterday the Steelers had only done this and this and that and hadn't done this and that, they would have won or, or whatever. Uh, you know, so and uh, unfortunately, you never be able to disconnect yourself from the history that 
pretty much any wrestling fan specifically remembers about that that whole angle. But any fan that goes back and watches that, I would ask them to try as best they can to erase their mind and watch each phase of that angle as it lays out. Um, from the four-way dance to Franny doing, pulling her stick and stripping, you know, in the arena down to the uh, franchise song, uh, to the broken neck, to the halo incident. Go through each piece of that as if you've never watched it or knew what was about to happen. And I think if you do that, that you'll end up in the same destination where you are right now, knowing with all you know. Because each piece of that was laid out in incredibly professional fashion. That, you know, it wasn't just let's throw a shit against the wall and see if it sticks. There was a method to the madness in each phase of that angle. That led you, not to say you couldn't have gone another direction anywhere along that, that, that compendium, but at each, let's throw that in there as a, as a sidebar. At each point you come to this, ask yourself, what would have been the outcome if we had done this instead of the way it was done? Or if we had, you know, slid Gary Wolf over instead of Shane Douglas in that first meeting? What would have happened if, you know, Pitbull number two would have gone over when Gary Wolf climbed up on the apron with his halo? What would have happened? What would have been the next logical progression? And I doubt that any of those logical progressions would have led up to the same place where Paul Heyman's booking took it, to a place where fans would have ripped out their eye teeth to see the franchise get his comeuppance, which is the sweet spot from a promoter's point of view. Because when you're lead heel, it, the fans would rather see him get destroyed, killed, dumped on his head, pinned, than you could draw money. There's always money in that. And at the end of the day, the franchise character is looking in the mirror and he can say to himself, God, I love being a bad guy because he won the whole, <laughs> as Jake Taylor in Major League would say, you won the whole fucking thing. So we can honestly close the book on this Gary Wolf saga for this episode. This was an awesome, awesome, just detailed look into this entire feud and the moment and the, the still the gasp that comes out of you when you watch the uh, the Halo toss and it's just uh, it's awesome we get to relive this on the show. And, and please, fans, we love to hear the feedback about this episode, about your memories of seeing Gary Wolf being thrown down. I had compiled a list of uh, some of the fan interactions or reactions about this uh, whole entire saga. And the consensus, Shane, is that it, it defined ECW to them as a fan. It was some people, it was the first thing that they ever saw with ECW and what a mark to leave on those brains of the wrestling fans and uh, so many more memories to be relived on this show. So what we want you to do is reach out to us, whether it's on Twitter at two man power trip at the franchise SD at wrestling pal or at the three threat pod. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what you have to say, not just about our podcast, but about the Gary Wolf saga and everything that encompassed 
this entire saga. All the players were there, all the moments, and we ca- we covered it as much as we could in today's episode. And Shane, I think that that's uh, pretty much uh, about a great uh, a seal we could put on the bag of the Gary Wolf saga. <laughs> I think it pretty much covers it, right? I mean, we've we've talked about this you know multiple times in little sidebars and stuff along the way, but you know, it's uh, the fact that the fans wanted to relive that for this episode to me is telling that 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 whole angle still holds a place in their heart. You know, so for me, it's cool to hear. It was very cool to hear. And please, like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, please support our new partner here, Figures Toy Company. Go check out the franchise Shane Douglas action figure that is a part of the Legends of Wrestling line that Figures Toy Company has produced. Uh, You could take your Shane Douglas figure and you can go break the neck of every single one of your other uh, your other toy lines figures, uh, the other toy line that remains nameless, you can go break every one of their stack of dimes and uh, and do it in franchise fashion. Uh, but please check out figurestoycompany.com as well as wrestlingsuperstore.com. Don't just check out the Shane Douglas figure. Check out the Jim Cornette figure, the Jerry Lynn figure, the Mikey Whipwreck figure, the Blue Meanie figure, and all the other legends of Extreme as well as the up-and-coming stars of today, including Sammy Callahan, who we mentioned earlier, Chris Hero, Joey Ryan, and Tama Tonga, formerly now of the Bullet Club. And uh, so many great things to come with Figures Toy Company and the Triple Threat Podcast. And uh, please send all suggestions you have for other figures. Write them online. Let them know who you want. Because Figures Toy Company is ready to revolutionize the wrestling figure industry uh, one little step at a time. And we're going to be happy to be a key cog in that wheel. So if you haven't gotten all that digested, head over to TMPTofWrestling.com. Check out the Triple Threat Podcast page. Get the rest of the links that we have on there, including the links to the Shane Douglas t-shirts at ProWrestlingTees.com as well as download links and YouTube links and anything else you want to check out regarding this show. And, uh, geez, I mean, I don't know what else to say about this, Shane. I'm going to hand it over to you. Please tell us where you're going to be out there this weekend doing your thing and where some of these listeners can enjoy some uh, some franchise goodness out there in their neck of the woods. <laughs> this coming uh, Saturday, I'm going to be in Van Buren, Indiana, uh, 7.30 on Saturday with Showtime Wrestling. Uh, looking forward to that last minute uh, uh, addition to the card. Uh, we've we uh, had a, another rare weekend off and uh, was uh, contacted, so we're going to be out in Van Buren, Indiana, this uh, Saturday. Looking forward to that, and you know a few little pit stops going to make on the way up uh, through some uh, familiar territory to me and and uh, some more friends' uh, places on the way up. So. Looking forward to a big weekend and looking forward to seeing the fans. I don't, I don't get to Indiana, being, you know, being that it's two states away. I don't get to Indiana quite as much as I used to. So for me, every chance I get to get out there and, you know, you get this stage of my career, you know, and tomorrow for all we know, right? So, <laughs> you know, for me getting out to Indiana, this is a, uh, this is a, uh, you know, uh, you know, exciting for me to get out there and looking forward to seeing the fans out there and, uh, getting a chance to say hello because, like I said, you know, you know, you don't know week to week how things are going to end up in this business. So Van Buren, Indiana, this coming weekend, looking forward to being there and uh, saying hello to all the fans there. So excited! Awesome, sounds good. And hey, when you're uh, when you're out there in Van Buren, Indiana, make sure you look for some of those uh, franchise Shane Douglas T-shirts because I'll tell you what, Shane, I was wearing the uh, the classic gold over the weekend, and I kid you not, at least one or two people stopped me. 
every time I wear it. So let's see how many franchise shirts uh, come out in droves to Van Buren, Indiana. So with that being said, again, thank you for your participation in picking this episode. Let's see what we do next. And let's get it over to episode 58. Shane, I'm going to hand it over to you. Let's end this thing and get on out of here. Hey, episode, a big, big episode for me reliving the huge Gary Wolf uh, broken neck halo throwdown. Thank you to the fans for the uh, for the suggestions and the votes to bring this show to fruition this week. But as much as we've had 57 episodes of great, great content right here on the Triple Threat Podcast, next week, number 58, you have no idea what we got in store for you. So tune in next week or get your ass franchised. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.